you're, you're a kid and you walk into a cave, right? Or a big empty building. Maybe it's just an open space with uh, many rock formations or maybe even a big empty church, maybe a cathedral, I don't know. What do you do? You shout, right? <laughs> of course. Maybe it's not the very first thing that you do, but as soon as you make a noise and you hear how it sort of resonates in that big empty space and then seems to sound back at you, you almost instinctively start testing it out, right? Echo! You done that? Echo! And of course, you don't really need to be a kid, right? It's just like when we imagine ourselves as kids, then we give ourselves more permission to try stuff out. <laughs> Have you done that? Echo! And you try to hear back. And at some point, at some point, for some reason, we shout the question, right? Hello! Hello! Anybody there? Who's there? And there's different variations of this, but they all play around with this, this mystery of this voice that calls back to us in response to our own. Is it someone else? Is it something else? Anybody there? Let me try to hear Now, more often than not, it's all just play and curiosity, right? It's fun to play with the sound. The door is right there behind us, right? More often than not, it's just playing around with the echo. The guide showing us the cave is standing right there with their name tag, right? Explaining stuff about rock formations and what stalactites and what stalagmites or whatnot. It's all just fine. But if we found ourselves actually lost in a cave, or actually lost in one of these wide, wild, empty spaces where echoes live, then suddenly the question would be of a very different nature, wouldn't it? Or listening for the answers would be much more anxious and much more probing, wouldn't it? Hello? Anybody there? Is it, is it only my voice echoing back? Or do I dare to hope that someone, something is actually listening and calling back? How do I even differentiate? Or maybe I fear that someone or something else is actually listening and calling back. Now, I would, I would guess and hope that very few of us have found ourselves in, an, in this situation, lost in an echoing wilderness, hoping that someone other than ourselves might listen to our call and answer and come for help. 
I won't ask you to raise your hands, but very likely very few hands would be raised if I asked if you've been in that situation. I know some would, but, <laughs> but very few would be raised, right? You've actually been lost in that kind of situation. If on the other hand, I took this same description of loneliness in an echoing wilderness as a metaphor, then I think many more hands would be raised. And perhaps many others would wish to raise their hands but wouldn't dare out of self-consciousness, fear, or shame. Have you ever experienced this sense of loneliness, this sense of wilderness, this existential feeling of being alone with your pain? Alone with your sorrow. Alone with your doubts. Alone with your fears and your questions. Sometimes even <laughs> feeling alone with your joys becomes a painful experience. Is there anybody there? Anybody listening? Or am I just speaking to the walls, and to myself. And loneliness of this sort isn't always the loneliness of an individual either. A group can feel lonely, right? Abandoned. Taking whatever comfort they may take in each other, yet still struggling that their voices beyond that group return nothing but echoes from big, empty, hard surfaces. Anybody there? Any voice that will respond in this sprawling wilderness? This, this question, this, this call, it has also often been both the individual and the collective cry towards any notion of the divine that we may have or might construe. There are many experiences of wilderness in the world. Finding ourselves in empty, barren, lonely spaces. And when we find ourselves in these places, both the non-theists and the pious believers often find themselves shouting similar questions in their souls or their inner selves or, you know, however we want to divide and understand our human complexity. Is anyone listening? Is anyone seeing? Are we alone in this space? Are we alone in this experience? We're now in the season of Lent, and uh, Lent has a lot to do with wilderness, with wild spaces where our needs and our limits confront each other, confront each other in the geography of the world and in the geography of our souls. Those of you who have been coming to OIC for a while know that that this year we are, we are paying a bit closer attention to the liturgical calendar. Right? So there's 
the, the church throughout the world, with some variations, often follows a, a, a calendar, a cyclical calendar. Just like we, every year, you know, do January, February, and go on and cycle. So there's a liturgical calendar that churches throughout the world uh, follow with some variations. And, and it, it goes, it cycles through. You know, we start with Advent towards Christmas, and then we go through the side season of Epiphany that we just can, and then we go into Lent, Easter, and so on until we come back. Uh, and this year in OIC, we're, we're just paying a bit closer attention to that. We have marked it in different ways, especially with the, with the holidays, with Easter and Christmas and all that. But we're like, okay, what's, what do we learn from this? We're trying to pay attention to it. And now is the season of Lent. Now we've come, starting last Sunday, to the season of Lent. And we're exploring uh, the liturgical calendar, learning from it, and allowing it to shape also our series of preachings. And we have called our Lent series Echoes. Is it there? Yeah, it is there. Awesome. Echoes. And in this series, we want to explore some of the experiences of wilderness, right? of, of loneliness, of abandonment in, in the middle of life. And we want to say something about the Christian response and about the Christian responses. And I really do think that response is a much better word than answer here. Answer is a word that closes, right? Answer is a word that closes. Response implies conversation. It implies ongoing sensibility. It implies listening. And it is response because it is about God's response to us. But it is also responses because it is also about our responses to each other. And last week, Christina led us into this conversation. She walked us uh, into the wilderness, in a way, uh, to tell us that we would find someone there. That we would find Christ there. Incarnation. Incarnation is what we call this, this act and this discovery. That God not only is present in the wilderness, but that God chooses to make the God self present in a way, in a way that feels the, the hot sand of the desert burning against the soles of his feet in a way that feels the sweat rolling down his brow under the unmerciful sun. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walking through Galilee, crying over the death of his friend Lazarus. That's what Christina talked about last week. Now that, that in itself is a wonderful discovery, right? The possibility of response, uh, a sudden presence in the echoes. And today I want to follow deeper into, into the discovery. Deeper into Lent, deeper into the question. 
And to do that, I want to follow Jesus into the wilderness. A bit more literally today. And I want to do that guided by St. Matthew, the gospel writer. And Matthew is the one who today paints the, the landscape for us. And I want to read from the gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Where Matthew tells us, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Um, then the devil left him. And angels came and attended him. So that was Matthew telling us of Jesus in the desert. Now Lent. Lent is a period of 40 days leading to Easter. It's actually a bit more than 40 days because you don't count the Sundays, but I'm not going to go into all of that. The point is the symbolic period of Lent is 40 days. Why? Because of this story that we just read. Because Jesus went to the wilderness for 40 days. But we really do need to ask further. Because just as Lent is 40 days because of Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, so also Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness are 40 days for a reason. Or to say it differently, the gospel writer isn't just casually telling a story. They never are, by the way. Uh, they never are. Matthew, just as, as Luke, who also tells this story, he has given us a key. He has given us a frame within which to understand this story. Right? So why does Jesus even do this? Why does Jesus go to the wilderness? And why 40 days? Well, Jesus goes to the wilderness because Israel went to the wilderness. In, in the narrative identity of Israel, in the context of which these stories are being told in the first century Israel, right? This is what this is about. Jesus goes to the, to the wilderness because Israel went to the wilderness. Because the wilderness in this, in this story, right? The wilderness is the place of reckoning with God's response to the plight of the people. Forty days, forty years in the desert. The wilderness is the place of grappling with one's identity 
as the ones who hear and receive this response from God. The wilderness is the place where the conversation can start taking place because the deepest questions of survival and identity are asked. Forty days, just as the 40 years of Israel. When the gospel writers give us such a clear key in this context of, of Jewish narrative, again, it reminds us of how important it is to pay attention to the context, to the historical context, but also to the narrative and the literary frame in which these stories are told. And I have preached about this story and this dynamic before in the context of the gospel according to St. Luke. And the story, the telling is very similar to Matthew, very similar. And I argued then that Luke is addressing the dynamic of God's incarnation into the wilderness through the issue of power. And I believe that Matthew addresses this as well. But Matthew has, has a somewhat different twist in his storytelling, in the way he is telling the story. But let me first talk a bit about what I mean by the issue of power. When preaching from the gospel according to Luke, I talk about this story as Jesus being confronted with the question of how he would choose to wield power in the world. So this is, in the context of Luke, a story in which the gospel writer makes clear for us the manner in which we should understand Jesus' power through the rest of the gospel by showing us how Jesus chooses to wield power. And Luke has, has uh, the story of the baptism of Jesus with a strong language of authority. And then he brings us to this story in the desert and he follows to Jesus in the synagogue in Capernaum, open the text of Isaiah and saying, uh, okay, now I'm having Matthew and Luke. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for I have come to spread good news to the poor, deliverance uh, to the enslaved, and so on and so forth. I don't remember it now by head, right? So that's the context in the Gospel of Luke. And I, I label these three temptations uh, that we have in this story under three areas in which power is wielded. Right? Economical power, political power, and religious power. So economical power has to do with how we deal with resources. And I'm, I'm flying a bit through this, but the issue of Jesus and the bread in the wilderness is not for Luke a question of having power, it is a question of how power is used, how it is wielded. And the accuser, which is where that word devil comes from, Satan, which means the ones who accuse, the accuser comes to Jesus and says, there's plenty of rocks, you're hungry, make bread for yourself, right, to feed yourself. And Jesus responds by saying no, not, not, on, not on bread alone, but on the word of God, which is a reference to a context in Deuteronomy. And then a bit later on the Gospel of Luke, again, paying attention to the big arcs in around chapter 9, if I'm not mistaken, G uh, uh, Luke shows us Jesus multiplying bread for a huge crowd. So for Luke, it's not an issue of if Jesus has or does not have power. The question is how that power is yielded. And economical power 
is about access to resources and controlling how they may be used. And Luke is telling us, and Matthew as well, I argue, Jesus will eat when he needs to eat. He will invoke divine power to feed a whole crowd that is hungry and has no food. But he will not invoke that power to feed himself alone. Economical power, how we deal with resources and all of that, and how Jesus will do that in the world. Okay. The other one is political power. Right? Jesus is tempted to change the world by enforcing his will and asserting his authority. If you, if you bow down, I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. Take the easy route. Don't you want to change the world? Rule it. I'll make it happen if you just do this. Impose your will. And there's again a reference to uh, Deuteronomy and a reference to Pharaoh. I'm not going to go into all of that. If you want, you can go and read the preaching. It's actually from the 30th of January last year. But the notion that ends justify the means, right? And Jesus refuses and he shows throughout the gospel that Jesus, and Luke throws, shows throughout the gospel that Jesus will show his power not through imposing his will, but through deeds of righteousness and kindness among the people, right? Not over and above them, but among the people. And then the third is the issue of religious power. And here Jesus is tempted to use the religious apparatus to rally up followers and display his divine authority. Aren't you divine? Well, then go to the temple, which everybody recognizes as the center of religious power, And do a show of power so everybody will rally to your cause and you can use the whole apparatus to do your agenda. But Jesus does a very different route and he chooses to die out of the city hall, of the city walls, together with prisoners, the the death of a criminal. Now this was a very quick overview, right? And again, you can hear the whole preaching on our podcast if you want. It's from last year, January. My point is, this has to do with the dimension of wielding power. But there's a different side to this, isn't there? There are those who wield power. And there are those over whom power is wielded. The world has the powerful and the crowds of powerless. The ones screaming in the the wilderness, right? Screaming in the empty spaces where echoes live. Is there anybody there? Anybody that cares? Anybody that listens? Anybody that will help? And Matthew, I believe, is sensible especially sensible to these when Matthew tells the story. You see, in in the gospel according to Matthew, when Jesus comes to the desert, where is he coming from in the narrative? Oh, he's coming from the experience of a refugee. Just a couple of chapters before. Matthew tells us of Jesus' family as a family who has to run Because political powers are killing kids, they have to get out. 
life is unsustainable. So they run. They're refugees in Egypt for a few years. And then they come back, hoping to reestablish their lives. It's still dangerous, so they go to the outback. They don't go to Bethlehem. They go to Nazareth. They go to Galilee, right? And then Matthew tells us of Jesus' baptism, and we actually talked about this a few weeks ago in our, in our epiphany seasons, because when Matthew tells of the gospel, he tells us of, of the baptism, he tells us of Jesus coming to the water and John being, what are you doing, Jesus? Right? John being utterly confused because this is the anointed one of God. Why is he taking part in a ritual that is essentially about getting in touch with our humanity and our brokenness? Forgiveness, right? Repentance. And Matthew is the one who tells us of this confused John being, Jesus, what are you doing? And Jesus says, no, I have to take part of this. He goes into the water. And then he comes to the wilderness, right? He comes to the wilderness. And where does, where does he go from here? And I want to read from verse 12, just after. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what's, what was said to the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. You see where Matthew sheds the prophetic light, right? The people living in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Matthew gives us incarnation, getting real, getting among and in touch with real issues that are real for us. Engaging not just the answers, but the questions, right? Questions of human despair. This is about power. But it is not merely about the powerful. It's also about the weak. It's also about the ones upon whom. And Matthew is showing us Jesus' choice to be with the weak rather than the powerful. You see, the risk here is that we present incarnation still as a distant God. A God who comes to show how it should be done, to give the answers and leave. A God on earth, but still on the side of the powerful. But Matthew holds Luke on the balance, right? They converse, they talk with each other. And Matthew tells us, no, this Jesus, this incarnated is the refugee. He is the one 
joining us in these, in these questions, right? One who walks with the powerless. We can't still bend and construe incarnation as a matter of some sort of distant grace. We can imagine for ourselves a Jesus that comes but doesn't rub bodies with us, right? Keeps his distance. But for Matthew, incarnation is, in, is a matter of close compassion. Is there anybody there? Matthew's answer is yes. Not only is there anybody there, Matthew's answer is there's somebody here. Here. It doesn't shut the questions, does it? But what does it do to our faith? To have a God in the middle of it all. That joins us in the questions, in the pain. Not a, not, a, not a Christ who just comes and walks into the doctor's office and sits at the doctor's chair and says, okay, now bring me your problems, right? A God who goes live in the leper colony. Goes rub their skin, our skin. What does that do to our hope and our practice of responses in this wilderness. Is there anybody there? Matthew says yes, but also it's an invitation, isn't it? Whose voice is it? Whose voice can it be? And the thing is, if we have a faith that has space for this kind of sensibility of God in incarnation, then that needs to touch us as well. Is there anybody there leads to a question of, am I there? Am I there? Being where we are is one of the most difficult exercises of spirituality. Allowing to imagine, hope, and live as if God is present where we are, not merely where we want to be, (laughs) or hope that we will get, is one of the hardest exercises of spirituality but it's where the power and grace of incarnation are really allowed to flourish and be gospel, be good news. And we will spend time these next weeks exploring these dimensions of wilderness and sort of different stories and different experiences. But this is, this is fundamental, isn't it? 
to believe that God is present in the middle of us all, of it all, and that we can be present. That to our questions, there is a response, an invitation into a conversation, the possibility of a presence in those echoes. We don't always know what to do. With a God in the wilderness, right? We know what to do with a God in the temple. We know what to do with a God gilded with gold. We know what to do with a God protected by a veil. We know what to do uh, with the hope uh, locked in a church, right? But out there, (laughs) we are asking in our souls, and so many are asking in their souls, is there anybody there? Where do we believe Christ is, where are we willing to be? Lent invites us to get in touch with these things. To invite ourselves out into the spaces of wilderness. God's there already but inviting us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you into the reality of your lives, into your days of joy, and your days of sorrow, that he may bring you of his peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve the world, serve each other, serve the Lord joyfully. Amen.